My name is Juliane Block. This is my podcast and today I'm speaking to a language coach, which is a reason why I'm actually pronouncing my name differently than in the other podcasts, because he told me I should make a choice. Actually, I should say my name in a consistent manner as I would pronounce it at home, which is Germany, or choose a different version. So here we go. So I'm saying the name how I would pronounce it, and that is Juliana Block. However, this podcast is about Clifford. So Clifford, introduce yourself. Yes, my name's Clifford Dispenser. I'm a British voice, language, dialect, dialogue coach. We have many names, um, depending on the job and the, sometimes the country we work in, that they have different designations. Um, and I've been doing this work in film and television mostly since 1987. My first job, and in fact, the only job I ever had in the theatre was one of the best possible. Uh, it was about eight months work in Paris with Peter Brook's troupe, um, working on the Mahabharata. That kick-started me into coaching actors rather than being a plain uh, English teacher to foreigners. So it was, that was my segue. It was just by chance that you got this job, which put you on this journey of being a coach? I've thought about this a lot since 1986, 87. I had a gap in my life. Uh, I was going to start training to be a voice teacher. That was already kind of in view. Um, the following September uh, in London, I, I, I had a postgraduate diploma. I'd landed. I had one more interview, but I thought probably I would do it. This was December. I was on my way back to London to have that interview. And I saw this piece of paper. And uh, all my friends were saying, so, okay, you finish that. And what are you going to do between now and September? I said, I don't know, go back to another language school for six months or something. And then I saw this piece of paper which said, looking for uh, a qualified, experienced teacher of English as a second language to work with an international theatre troupe from February to August. That was like 10 minutes after my friend said, so what are you going to do now? That's quite some decades in the industry. Well, since then, things have <laughs> got better and got worse. It's, uh, I think, anyone in our business, whether you're in front or behind of the camera, you have peaks and troughs. You know, things go really well for a period of time, and then you have a dry spell, nothing happens, or you're doing really pedestrian, horrible things like you know, some TV series shoots an episode a day and you want to kill yourself, but you, you just keep going. You have to be in this business for the long haul because the connections, the networking you do, you're planting seeds. It, they, it could take years for someone to call you and say, do you remember me? We worked on and I've got this. And that's happened so many times when I've had a lull and I've thought, well, perhaps I should become a postman or something. <laughs> Then a, the phone rings. It's like this magic thing. If I'm thinking, well, is this it? Have I done? Um, then the phone rings and somebody says, you know, I was the production coordinator. Now I'm the line producer. Um, so people, and, and they remember me and they look me up. So what about the glamorous side of the film industry? I mean, you were working very closely with actors, stars. So is there any glamorous, any stories to share? The glamour isn't really on set, <laughs> certainly. It's too much hard work, too much sitting around 
too much uh, heat and cold. Um, they're very big factors when you're shooting. Um, you're too hot because you're in a studio and you've got all the lights or you've got these big gas jets, you know, with flames, you know, to make some kind of hellish atmosphere uh, or you're outside and it's freezing cold. Um, the, the secret to getting through it is to have the right clothes. I agree. I, I, I cannot uh, agree it's, more. It's, it's not glamorous. But it's, it, it's an English thing that, you know, don't go out without your cardigan. It's uh, <laughs> always take your cardigan because in real life, you are indoors most of the time. You don't spend 12 hours outside in a normal life. Uh, even if you're on a beach holiday, you know, you go in at certain points. So it's, it's uh, something you realize, you make a few mistakes, you go on a night shoot in shorts once only. Weather was also a very important thing to consider when we are shooting Three Lives, and that's the film when we met. Do you want to tell us a little bit on how you perceived Three Lives? Just tell us your side of things. I was in Rome and you called me and um, I was, yeah, not doing very much at that point. And it sound, the project sounded intriguing. Uh, I, I recall you didn't have very much money <laughs> to splash around, <laughs> but it was a short job, three, four weeks. Yes. And I hadn't worked on anything like that before. I'd not done a, I'd done some unpleasant sort of gruesome things. Um, like Hannibal Rising, you know, there was quite a lot of gruesomeness in that. But I hadn't really done a psychological thriller. Yeah, I, well, I hadn't really done anything quite like that. And the, the challenge of shooting so quickly, I'd never, I'd always done regular BBC, Channel 4 right. or Showtime. And you do uh, like, uh, you do an hour's episode in 10 days, usually. So it's, it's, it's tough sometimes. But um, the idea of shooting a feature film in, in three and a half weeks, that was a, I thought, how are they going to do that? So um, that was interesting to, as, a, as an experience just for me to watch and experience. But I think all projects, I've never been on anything where nobody has lost their temper and nobody's walked off the set in a huff, where nobody's, you know, behaved badly. It's, um, we all have, have our moments and our limits. And I think the most important thing you have to know, or it's, it's about your personality. I think if, you, if you're able to prioritize, focus on the outcome, and that it is only for two months or six months maximum. You, you, there are not many projects that go beyond six months. You know that it will end, <laughs> if it's that bad, but it will end. Um, if it's really good fun, and TV often is quite nice, it's a nice rhythm, nice routine, and you're not necessarily working every day, every moment of every day. Um, but with three lives, yeah, that was pretty total. I think I was on set. It was three and a half weeks. We had 21 shooting days with this one move. And I was on, I was on set 95% of the time, and it doesn't mean I was watching or listening or doing anything. Uh, if you're doing a stunt, you know, we, you watch, you know, you're not participating. You just need to stand clear. And there's a lot of talking to the actors and, and maybe doing a bit of catch up coaching um, in the background or just grabbing a coffee and a pee. You know, the, these things, you know, you have to, it's a bit like being in the army. I, I like working on a film set. Um, people talk about guerrilla filmmaking 
which is a particular kind of filmmaking. But I think being on a film, especially with a tight um, schedule, it's a bit like the army. You have to take your breaks when you can, you eat when you can, you pee when you can, you sleep when you can. Um, and taking, you know, 10, 10 minutes nap is really quite useful. Um, but it's, it's not really in the moment glamorous. No, glamorous is like the opposite of what Three Live was. Yeah. <laughs> this much I can definitely say. You're getting rained on, it's cold, the truck gets stuck in the mud. I think we had on Three Lives. It was a bit of Several times. Wheel, wheels getting stuck in, in mud and reversing into tree stumps. And I mean, I, I had seen worse, so I have to say that much. And it looks great on screen, you know, like this whole wetness. Didn't we lose two grips? They had to spend the night in, because they couldn't find their way out of the forest or something. They spent the night in the truck. You know, that doesn't usually happen on the big movies. There's usually somebody. Well, who, who, who spent the night in the truck? Didn't the Sparks? Didn't two of the Sparks? Um, Aaron and... Uh, yeah, but not the whole night. Didn't they spend the whole night? I thought they... No, no, no. We, we, well, yeah, I remember they got lost, but like we found them. So we, oh, we, we didn't leave them in the forest. Yeah. So they came out at some point, I believe. But those uh, things tend not to happen. But even on the biggest budget films, rain can stop play. You know, a whole film set turns to mud overnight sometimes. Um, and then you either do it anyway. And so how do you get from where the car drops you to the set without being up to your knees in mud. Uh, it's just something you kind of, you have to accept this is the job and don't complain. So there's no prissiness or, well, I, um, I'm not being paid enough to do this. You, you, you have to kind of um, take it as it comes. Yeah, um, yeah, I think there's like some feeling of togetherness if everyone acts fair and in the most i think usually it's kind of everyone tries to act in the best interest of the film yeah. which kind yeah. of brings you together as a crew as a team quite interestingly like very like you can have very tight bonds after that but even on a big budget film uh i don't know for example i won't mention names specifically but uh, something like her which was, I don't know, 100 million, 150 million. The main mistake they made was thinking they could shoot it in four months. And everyone said, no, you can't. And various people left the production because they knew it couldn't be done. And they went on to other bigger, better productions right. as it happened. They had offers, but I stayed put. You've got big stars and big actors and a lot going on. It's a three ring circus. There's a lot of planning for the next, you know, everything, sets are being built, costumes. And I'm trying to get the actors ready. But when it's 45 degrees, you know, um, it's really quite hard to do anything. And if you're an actor, uh, you have to be sensitive because... Yeah, if an actor's getting, you know, a six or seven figure salary, they should put up with it. But I think the bigger the budget, the more money people are being paid, I think the more fussy and, and silly they become. It's like, you know, I'm too good for this. And um, people saying, am I in this frame or am I just standing here? Uh, <laughs> and people throwing their spear down and stomping off um, and then have to be called back. And, and you're lining up hundreds, not thousands, we never have thousands of extras, but you're lining up hundreds of extras to get their spears straight and they're all collapsing in the heat. 
um, and an actor walks off, you know, the whole thing has to start again. Uh. The, sh the framing, because uh, you've got, you know, like the Magnificent Seven or something, you've got the, all these actors standing in a line in a, an arrow formation. And because one of our lead actors may not be ready, I'm up on a box on a box on a trailer pretending to be that actor on a horse. So they got the height, they know the eye line. So I'm the eye line for a row of international cast and I'm delivering the lines of this actor because he's not there. And so they're all looking to me and, you know, uh, it's, I, th that happens a lot. People don't realize how often dialogue coaches are called upon um, not only to act little roles, that can happen, because the actor didn't turn up or is ill, or they just think they need someone to come in with a with a tankard or something, and and you often have to deliver lines um, because the the actor or the actress is in makeup or still in hair, or um, it's a rehearsal and you've got to deliver, you know, with a big voice sometimes. Uh, you know, you have to be ready. It's very off putting to an actor if somebody with a completely different accent um, and way of speaking and they're reading the script and uh, is delivering lines, they can't perform, you know. So the fact that I know the line... Makes sense. I don't necessarily know them by heart, but I can, you know, I, and I can do the accent that the actor's supposed to be doing so it doesn't throw them completely. But there are lots of things that happen that are pra you have to be pragmatic and just say, okay, I'll do that. But I've, I've been lots of big heroes like Perseus and, uh, and Hercules in my time, but off, ca off camera. And it's, it's usually the actors quite enjoy it because they can make fun of me afterwards. <laughs> um, the analogy that works really well for a film set, big or small, is a, a medieval court. Uh, you've got the king, you've got the <laughs> chancellor, you've got the various children. It's like a sitcom or it's like a, a soap opera. You've got the different children trying to get attention and you've got the, the, the first wife and the second wife uh, trying to make sure their child gets the, the crown. Yeah, you know? there's always drama on screen and off screen. You've got the servants and you've got all the other officials. You've got ambassadors coming and going. It's, um, and the mistresses, you know, it's, a, it's like the court of Henry VIII or something. Uh, and you've got religious things happening in the background, you know, different philosophies, different approaches. You've got the money people saying, we can't afford to go to war, my, your majesty. Um, like we can't afford to build that set. Um, or we have to stop now. We can't keep shooting because there's no money. Two things at once I wanted to ask. First of all, difference between dialogue coach and dialect coach and that like kind of ties in with my question if you ha I mean I know that very often you work also with uh, non-English native speakers so if they want to break into an, the international market any advice for them? The titles we have dialect coach is very much the American or the British uh, terminology especially because in England uh, it's quite important to establish um, the regional accent or the social accent and to get it very accurate. Also in America, you have lots of different accents. Um, and so it's quite important to get the dialect right, um, especially if you have a family or a community and they're all supposed to have this. this. So that would normally be dialect coach. Dialogue coach is very old fashioned. It goes back to the early, the early days of talkies in Hollywood uh, and movies in England as well, uh, where somebody would be 
helping, often it would be the script girl, um, would be helping the actor with their lines. It could be early days of Hollywood, actors came from all over Europe, their English sometimes was very, very bad. And so they would have someone just reading lines, rehearsing lines, uh, people like Marlene Dietrich or Garbo, you know, they had to have someone constantly because uh, they moved from silent to, to speaking. So the dialogue coach idea was somebody who helped learn the lines. So a repetiteur, we'd call it. And when I worked in Paris and lived in Paris, we were always called, the people doing this job were never doing French dialects. Nobody did that. That was, you just did straight you know, people from different dialects would be in the same family. Nobody really cares in Europe. But if you were coaching in English for an American, Canadian, British co-production, that would be a dialogue coach. You would be helping the French actor, for example, speak better English than they were able to. That's what you did on Three Lives then for the German actors. Yeah, so in Three Lives, that was very much a dialogue coaching job, although we did have a native speaker. We were going to have an American doing a British accent. That would have been dialect coaching because right. it's a native English speaker moving dialects. So she would have called me and thought of me as a dialect coach, um, but we didn't have that. But sometimes even native speakers need uh, prodding, reminding, prompting. Maybe they have a way of speaking or pronouncing things that's a bit odd, that doesn't fit or they don't know how to pronounce something. So you step in as a, a kind of advice, a language advisor and say, well, I would say it this way, but it's up to you. Um, and sometimes an actor will just say, Clifford, is it either or either? And I say, well, whichever you like, but be consistent. The other question about advice for actors, we're very lucky in the Anglo-Saxon world, England, America, the Commonwealth countries, very strong theatre tradition came from England, uh, film tradition. There are excellent drama schools and programmes in all of those, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. The training is there. There's a lot of theatre. People can cut their teeth. They don't necessarily go straight into TV or film. For non-native speakers or people who want the flexibility to have these careers to come from Australia, to act with a British accent and then with an American accent. You really need the training and that's voice training, phonetic training, dialect training. The earlier you can get it, the better. And the reason why an Australian actor can be a huge hit in England playing Queen Elizabeth or in America playing a variety of it's because you know they've gone to you know the Rada or the NIDA or the the central of that country and they've they've learned to do it. American actors tend not to have that training. That's the one thing against them. They have a huge star potential uh, to bring money, but they don't necessarily have the the theatrical training or the dialect training. Um, so it can be harder for them. They can do a more neutral accent or maybe a regional American accent, but to do a, a really good British accent, um, especially a posh one, is very, very hard. And every English ear is, is listening very <laughs> attentively. So basically for new actors, specifically if they are from a non-English native country, really practice is key. So practice, practice, practice and get like a proper training in terms of voice The thing is, you don't know what's going to come. As an American actor, you may never be asked 
to do a German accent or a, an English accent, a British accent. Uh, you just don't know. So the main thing is if you can go to a class that's about the voice and how to change the voice and do character voices, that's going to be very helpful um, because one of the things that helps to get an authentic sounding accent is to make changes to your natural voice. So you slip into a different voice rather than trying to lay an accent over your natural speaking uh, technique. No, as, as a non-native speaker of English, the best thing you can do is just keep going to English classes, uh, watch movies, be aware of the differences between, you know, Canadian, Australian, British, American. Try and listen to the differences. Look words up that you don't know. Be uh, Keep a notebook, write things down. And anytime somebody says something, oh, that's quite a good phrase, write it down, look it up, check it, and try to incorporate it. And just make your, uh, if you have the opportunity to speak English regularly, just don't settle into a mediocre level try to, to to keep going and practice and get better um okay read, reading etc all of these things are, are good so what's next for you well in my twilight years i'd like to <laughs> as i see them um well i could live another 30 years so i've already branched out i've been doing things like translating and editing all my adult life uh, in the background quietly um so those jobs are always nice, um, proofreading. But if somebody comes to me uh, like a, a charming German director and says, we're looking for an actor to play this role, can you think of anybody who might work for this money? Um, and maybe I do, and maybe it works out. But often, as we know in this business, things don't work out. But if they do, that's great. And uh, you know, we all help each other. And um, so the kind of producing side of things, being more um, creative or, or shaping things, it's such hard work. It's, it's one it is, in a million yes. to get anything off the ground. The best scripts go unfilmed and the best actors sit at home not working. It, it's, it's, you really have to be like a like a gold explorer you have to have that mania you have to keep going um and and maybe one day that person you met on a film set or on a bus you know 10 years ago will call you and say oh i found you online and uh, would you like to help do this um so i'm sort of branching out into more public relations also film festivals giving master classes and workshops talking about the role of the dialect coach in film People seem to find that quite interesting. They're not really aware of it, generally speaking. Um, and um, so educational, you know, just saying this is important. And if you're a budding director, producer, writer, think about who's going to play this role and how they're going to speak the lines um, and do the research and try and get it right. So it doesn't need to be rewritten at the last minute. Right. Um, so it, I think it's to the giving back to younger people who turn up at these festivals to masterclasses, they, they really just need to be taught. And maybe I'll write a book about the, the protocols of the film set. Oh, <laughs> I would works, totally read it. What works, what doesn't work. Um, and maybe a little bit the history of dialect coaching or dialogue coaching, 
which starts in 1930, really, with talking movies. So if people want to connect with you, where can they find you? I have a website, which is my name, Clifford Dispenser. It's also clemencyfilms.com. It's the same website. We put those into the description so everyone can just find you there. Thank you, Clifford. Thank you, Yulina. I definitely enjoyed some of the stories and learned something new. So thank you so much for doing this podcast. Thank you.